Now, the Gospel of Mark is helping us see week after week who the real Jesus is and what it means to follow Him. And everything He says is countercultural in some way or another. And that's certainly the case uh, for what we're going to see this morning. It was countercultural in His own day, it's countercultural in our day because the topics He's addressing here are marriage and divorce. And he addresses gender along the way. Now, these are obviously controversial in our culture. We've been watching a seismic shift in these issues that's happened very rapidly. Things that once seemed certain are now viewed as uncertain. Things that should be very uncertain are viewed as certain uh, by many people. Until recently, it was taken for granted that sex and gender were rooted in biology. It wasn't controversial. There's boys and there's girls. You can It's obvious which is which, and you can confirm it by looking for the chromosomes. We understood marriage to be the union of one of these men with one of these women, and marriage was for life, and divorce is only in some very narrow circumstances. And now each of these categories is being either redefined or left undefined for now. So children are being taught to find their gender by looking at their feelings. Just in this past week, or a couple weeks, we've seen a new Supreme Court justice not be able to tell what a woman is, and Disney's no longer letting um, employees address crowds with language like boys and girls or ladies and gentlemen. We live in a commitment-averse culture that's going to run against marriage and an easy divorce culture. So these fundamental categories of gender and marriage are quickly changing. And that's the only reason I I draw attention to those examples, uh, because we're we're watching this rapid shift around us. And so, what should we do? How should we respond? Are we rediscovering what should now be obvious, and we reject what many have believed over uh, in the past? Well, here's what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't hold on to anything just because it's traditional. We don't need a false sense of nostalgia for the 1950s. So, what we need to do is be re-enchanted by a bigger vision of life that makes sense of gender and marriage. So, our culture is shifting on these topics because of a deeper shift under the surface that's happened, which is why we need to be re-enchanted with a bigger vision. It's a shift to a vision that's happened here, of life with the individual self at the center. So that's really what's happened in our culture underneath. So it's an individualistic culture that places supreme value on self-fulfillment. So it teaches to look inside yourself to find or create your identity. And then the supreme value of the culture is leaving space and freedom for people to express and perform that sense of identity. And the traditional vision of gender and marriage just does not fit that framework, which is why it's being completely pushed aside. Because once you shift your view of what reality is and what's most important, which is the individual self, finding and creating your identity, expressing it, well, then marriage and gender, as traditionally understood, will not have any place for it. So it actually makes perfect sense why these things have changed. So what we need is to be re-enchanted with a vision of reality that comes from the God who made us and who, that Jesus Christ himself spoke of. You know, many people think that Jesus didn't talk about sexuality and gender and marriage and divorce, but he did. 
And it's what we're going to hear this morning in Mark 10. So before we read this, I just want to share three of my goals this morning. One would be uh, clarity with kindness. Not only for me to express that, for, but for us to reinforce this as uh, Christians. It means we have to get clear on the truth, but we need to hold this and express it with kindness. Having the truth without kindness is empty and completely non-compelling. And yet having kindness without truth can mean we affirm things that aren't true, which actually can lead people not to flourishing, but to destruction in a culture. So it's not actually loving in the end anyway. Second goal would be repentance with rejoicing. Some of us need to be challenged in the way that we think. Some of us need to make life changes. Some of us need to not do the thing that we were thinking of doing. We need to repent, turn away from sin, turn to God. But we need to do this not from a mere sense of you know, condemnation or shame, but a recognition that repentance in the Christian life is the path to rejoicing. Because repentance is adjusting to reality, which leads to flourishing. It's receiving the forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ, and then by the Holy Spirit's power, being transformed to live in freedom as God's defined it, adjusting to reality as it as it's given by God. And so we want repentance with rejoicing. And then finally, courage with compassion. So Christians are going to need a whole lot of courage to hold on to what Jesus says in our culture. Uh, there's an increasing amount of pressure. It's not just a change on these topics, but a growing hostility toward anyone who believes what most people did 10 years ago. And so we are going to talk about these topics, but we need to show compassion toward those who disagree. I don't assume that all of you will agree with what we see Jesus saying here this morning on the page of the Bible. So I want you to know that if you disagree, I am glad that you're here. I'm in no rush. We're not shoving anything down anyone's throat. We're here to explore Jesus together. So what we're doing here is just patiently listening to what Jesus himself said on the pages of these ancient scriptures to listen to him and consider what it would mean to follow him. So let's now read this text with that in mind, and then we'll just seek to understand what Jesus says, all the while trying to understand how is this true, good, and beautiful? Not just true, but if it's true, how is it good and beautiful? So Mark chapter 10, verse 12 verses. Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, so this isn't an honest question, they're testing him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Implication, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together let not man separate. 
And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So our goal here is to listen to Jesus. We've heard his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would help us uh, to understand rightly what your word is saying here and what the Lord Jesus says. We pray that you would work in our hearts to be open and receptive to this. We pray that if there's any repentance needed in this room, that you would let us repent with joy and receive your grace and forgiveness and transforming power. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're listening to Jesus, and this is what he shows us on the path of discipleship, what it means to follow him as a disciple when we think of the category of marriage and divorce. So this is important to understand what he thinks, and it's also a non-negotiable for followers of Jesus. So if we're claiming to follow Jesus, then we embrace what he says here. So here's what we'll see, two things, the design for marriage and the question of divorce. So first, the design for marriage. So Jesus is teaching the crowds here, and Pharisees come to test him because they want to kill him, which they will do soon enough. It's not an honest question. Verse 2, they're trying to test him, trap him, so they ask him if divorce is lawful, kind of entering into a current controversy of their day, wondering how Jesus will respond. And he does respond in verse 3 by asking a question to them, as he usually does. And he says, what did Moses command you? What does the Bible say? So they respond in verse 4, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So the Pharisees are saying, well, Moses, and they're referring to Deuteronomy 24 here, said that Moses allowed it. And Jesus then makes this penetrating observation in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So in Deuteronomy 24, Moses was not approving of divorce or kind of commanding divorce as a good in general. He was assuming it would happen, because it did, uh, because of the hardness of Israel's hearts. And what he was doing is he was regulating it. Uh, Likely, if you go back in Deuteronomy 24 and think it through in that context, likely to regulate it so the fallout wasn't so bad and to protect women in that culture. So it's like when I say to my boys, if your brother steals from you, you are not allowed to punch him in the face. So I am not approving of stealing. I'm not saying stealing is okay. I'm just acknowledging that sin's going to happen, and I'm regulating the fallout from that sin. So Jesus is saying the same for divorce. Israel had a hard heart and an easy divorce culture. By the way, of course, we're not the first culture that's easy divorce. Moses's was. Jesus's was. We're the same. It's common. So that was the context there. And they had hard hearts, so Moses regulated it. In other words, what Moses says there isn't the final, ultimate word on it. So how does Jesus then answer the question, is divorce okay? He doesn't answer directly at first. Before he addresses the topic of divorce, he reminds them of God's design for marriage. Look at how he does this in verses 6 and 7. He says, but from the beginning of creation... And then he quotes Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2. God made them male and female. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he gives the summary, so there are no longer two but one flesh. So they ask Jesus about divorce, and Jesus talks to them about marriage. The point is, you can't understand a divorce until you understand God's design for marriage. Now, I want to pause here for a moment, because this move that Jesus makes is essential for us to make as Christians in our culture. Do you see what Jesus did? They ask him, tell me about divorce, trying to trap him. Tell me about your lame, backward view of divorce so that we can trap you. And he steps back and he says, well, let's talk about marriage. They ask about a particular issue, and he says, we can't think about that issue unless we go back to the beginning and see God's design. John Stott, um, one of my favorite authors, said that he would always do this in marriage counseling. He said that anytime someone came him for counseling in marriage, he wouldn't talk about divorce until the couple understood a biblical vision for marriage and reconciliation. So this is the pattern we need to follow on a number of topics today. Think about marriage, gender, sexuality, all these issues in our culture today, these topics are getting retooled in our culture because the design from the beginning is pushed aside for a different vision of life and reality. There's a bigger narrative in our culture that I mentioned at the beginning here that's individualistic. So we look inside ourselves to find or create our identity, we get it from our feelings, and then we express it. And this is the great good in our modern culture. It's an individualistic view of reality that's reshaping how we think about gender and marriage and sexuality. And once we embrace this individualistic view, which is in the air we breathe, then we can change our minds on these topics because they'll naturally change. We say that we define gender, we can get in and out of a marriage, and we can pursue sexuality how we want. It's a means of self-fulfillment. So in light of this individualistic view, Jesus' teaching will not fit. It won't make sense because Jesus' teaching is not the way of self-fulfillment, the way of self-denial, right? He's on his way to the cross to show us that the, the way of the cross, his path to the cross and the way of discipleship following him is the way of the cross, which is the way of costly, self-sacrificial love. So we deny ourselves and we follow Jesus, and we especially put to death selfishness in us. Not that ourselves don't matter. He appeals to our greatest self-interest by saying this is the path of true life. But he's saying when you look inside, you're going to find a mix here, good self-interest and selfishness. And so he's giving this other reality here, other vision. And so this is why we need this bigger narrative that Jesus gives us. We need to see God's design for humanity in Eden from the beginning, and then Jesus' sacrificial love on the cross. Only then will his teaching on marriage and gender and sexuality and so forth actually make any sense. So when our culture then asks the question, what do you think about marriage? What do you think about divorce? What do you think about gender? What do you think about sexuality? Our first step should be to follow Jesus' move and say, can I share with you what I believe is God's good design for humanity and marriage in general first. Because what I say won't really make sense apart from that. So we follow Jesus' pattern there. 
And so that's the move Jesus makes to go back to marriage in the beginning to answer this question. I think it's brilliant, and we should follow that pattern. And so what do we learn from Genesis 1 and 2? Well, look at what Jesus says again in verses 6 to 8. He's quoting from Genesis 1 and 2 here, and he says from Genesis 1, God made them male and female. So humanity's made in God's image as male and female. And then chapter 2, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what do we learn about marriage from this? Well, here's a very simple definition from, of marriage from this text. This is the briefest way I can think to define it. It's the union of a man and a woman for life. That's marriage. So it's a union. The language here Jesus uses from Genesis is one flesh. Um, you could say it's a comprehensive union. This is a physical, social, emotional economic union of two people becoming one flesh, a whole life union of two people. We also see that it's between a man and a woman here. So Jesus roots his understanding of marriage in gender difference. He says God made them male and female, so he affirms God's design for humanity in his image of these two equally valuable genders and sexes, male and female, and this means that Jesus has a view of gender. There is a Christian view of gender from Genesis 1 and 2, reaffirmed by Jesus. And it also means that gender is a gift. We receive this. And then third, it's marriage is for life. It's a commitment. So God is joining two people together. Those are just, as far as I can tell, just basic observations from Genesis 1 and 2 as Jesus himself reaffirms this. So marriage is the union of one man and woman for life. And so that's the vision for marriage. And so now Jesus uses that to answer the question of divorce. So second now, the question of divorce. And look at the reasoning Jesus gives here. So he quotes from Genesis 1 and 2, God's design for marriage. He says that marriage is God uniting two people as one flesh. And then notice verse 9, he gives this implication for how we understand divorce. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus, Jesus is asked the question by the Pharisees, can a man divorce his wife? Perhaps vice versa. And Jesus says, well, given what marriage is, that it's an act where God joins two people together, then no, man shall not separate what God has joined together. Don't work against what God has done. So that's about as clear and straightforward of a principle as you can get. And then his disciples ask him about this in private, and he gives a further implication. In verses 10 and 12, he says that if someone divorces a spouse, so if this does happen, and then they marry someone else, they commit adultery. So think, think this through. Why would that be the case? Why would a second marriage after divorce of a first marriage be considered adultery? It's because the first marriage was a covenant, and just because you leave your spouse, that doesn't mean the covenant is fundamentally severed. So when you then marry someone else, you are violating that first covenant. You're committing adultery against your first spouse because God joined you together. So here's the bottom line then. The Pharisees asked Jesus if divorce is okay. 
And Jesus says, marriage is a lifelong covenant, so divorce doesn't fit the design. Marriage is not designed to be broken. So that's the foundational principle. But it's not everything that Jesus and the New Testament say about divorce. And so as we look at this text, I think it's important for us to step back and bring in a few of the other things that are also clear in the New Testament. So there's a couple questions we need to answer here. First, are there any exceptions? Are there any exceptions where the Bible would say that divorce is permitted? And the answer is yes, there are some narrowly defined exceptions. There are situations where one spouse has legitimate reasons to divorce his or her spouse. And so what I want you to do uh, is to write down the two texts that give the exceptions most clearly because they're critical to navigating these conversations. Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. So just write those down. You want to have those. I don't know how many times I've talked to Christians who have no idea that there are texts that talk about this. And so those are the two places. If you want to know what Jesus thinks about marriage and if there are any exceptions, you've got to look at Matthew 19 and you've got to look at 1 Corinthians 7. Um, So get to know those texts. We're not going to have time this morning to go in detail, but here's a summary. One exception, and this comes from Jesus himself. So this isn't like, well, Jesus says no divorce, um, but Drew's now up here saying, well, that's kind of hard, so here's a few that make sense to him. No, let's, Jesus himself gives an exception. Mark's very concise here, as he is with many things. Um, Matthew tells this same version of the story in Matthew 19, and he just fills out some of the details. And one of the details he includes is that Jesus himself notes an exception to this. So in Matthew 19, he's also brief, but he says that there's an exception of sexual immorality. So the Greek word Jesus uses here, I always draw attention when we see it because it's all over the New Testament, really important word, porneia. Porneia was used as a broad word to include a number of sexual practices, adultery, fornication, homosexual practices, and so forth. It's a word that really is often used to describe anything that doesn't fit sex between the one man and one woman in the marriage covenant. So actually, if you want to know what's the Christian view of all of these various sexual things, once again, you don't just look at isolated Bible verses on those first. You say, well, let's step back. What's God's original design for marriage and sexuality? He made us male and female. Marriage is the context for all sexual practice. So anything outside of the context of one man and one woman in a covenant is out of bounds because it's not within this limit. So name however many you want outside of this context, um, it would be out of bounds. So Jesus mentions that sexual immorality um, would be an exception to this. Someone can divorce a spouse for sexual immorality. Now, Jesus doesn't say they have to get divorced. He doesn't say that you're You no longer need to forgive that person if they repent. Um, Forgiveness is always required um, and a call for Christians. Um, You do have to forgive, but you are permitted to divorce, and God honors that because your spouse, not you, is the one who broke that covenant. Your spouse is the one who severed it to the core. And so Jesus is giving this exception to permit uh, really the acknowledgement of that and then to leave the covenant. 
So there's a second exception. So sexual morality is one. The second is abandonment. In particular, in 1 Corinthians 7, is the abandonment um, in a marriage where one person's a Christian, the other person is not a Christian, and that other person doesn't want to be married anymore, and they leave. And so 1 Corinthians 7 um, says that if you are married to someone who's not a Christian, now to be clear, the Bible calls Christians to only marry Christians. Um, that's in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. 2 Corinthians 6 has an implication as well. We marry in the Lord. But it has happened, right? Maybe in this room. You made that decision in the past, and so there you are, and that's okay. So what do you do now that it's happened? Well, if the unbelieving spouse leaves and doesn't want to be part of that, Paul says to the believing spouse, you're not bound, don't fight, just it's okay, let them go. Um, you're not commanded to fight for that um, marriage or be bound to that marriage in his language. So that's the second exception. If someone leaves the covenant and abandons you, you can acknowledge that that's happened um, and you're not bound to that covenant. You're free. There's a third potential exception that we can call extreme cruelty or severe abuse. Now, there's a number of things I want to say about this, but I want to say two things very uh, clearly. One is that abuse is a, it's hard to even say this with enough seriousness, a massively serious sin. It should be confronted among God's people. Church leaders should be brought in to help with that confrontation if needed. It's appropriate to call authorities. It's a tragedy whenever, as we've seen happens in our culture, it's winked at or overlooked or covered over or ignored. And so we want to be a church that takes this very seriously. Second is that safety is a priority. Regardless of how you understand grounds for divorce, safety is a priority. Those who are being abused need to be protected and helped to safety. And so regardless of what we think about what to do with the marriage, those are priorities. And uh, if you are in that kind of situation, know that um, we want to help you, the leaders want to help you, and we care about you, and we acknowledge that abuse is a sin against you, um, and we want to help you. Now, regarding what to do with the marriage in cases of extreme cruelty, there's no explicit verse that gives this as an exception. However, there are biblically responsible and reasonable ways to see this as another exception or as part of the exceptions there. Many faithful Bible-believing evangelical scholars, the history and today, land here. And so there's two paths that are typically taken. First would be that extreme cruelty is essentially forced abandonment. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if an unbeliever abandons you, you can let them go. So if someone is violent in a relationship, they're forcing their spouse to leave and flee to safety. And if they're confronted and unrepentant over time, then they would be considered an unbeliever. You can't claim to follow Jesus and be an abusive spouse and unrepentant. So this is a kind of forced abandonment. Another path that some would take is that when Paul says that abandonment is an exception, he also says, in such cases as these, you're not bound. And so when he says, in such cases, he could be referring to situations like 
being abandoned by an unbeliever, which then could include these kinds of extreme cases, right? When someone has abandoned you and broken the covenant like this, you're not bound. So situations where the covenant is severed or broken through this kind of cruelty. So in light of this, here's what I'd urge you to do if you're ever in this tragic situation. Study these texts. Have a clear conscience before the Lord. Find brothers and sisters who love you and love the Lord and trust His Word to help you. Uh, and as elders, we want to engage with you on this. So we, we shouldn't need to make these decisions in isolation. We want to help think it through. And I do want to give a caution here. Um, our culture is rightly drawing attention to abusive and cruel leaders and husbands. And it's good that attention is drawn to that. But there can be at the same time an overcorrection that happens where people start saying that any expression of anger whatsoever would be in the category of abuse and therefore grounds for divorce. Um, or they'll, they'll include all sorts of other sins in the category of grounds for divorce. So in the end, what you really have is if anyone has sinned against you in marriage, you can divorce them, which means every marriage has grounds for divorce, which really undermines the whole everything Jesus is really saying about this. So I want to remind us the main thrust of Jesus' words in Mark 10 here. His words are countercultural to a culture of easy divorce. They were countercultural in his context. They're countercultural in ours. And so we need to be cautious about this, about those who want to give biblical grounding for easy divorce. You can't do that and be faithful to Jesus. One more question. What about remarriage? Here's the principle. Where you do have biblical grounds for divorce, where there's a biblical exception granted, you are free to be remarried. Where you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, you do not have freedom to be remarried. So look again at verses 11 to 12. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another. So the assumption here, whoever divorces his wife without an exception, right, without grounds, and marries another, commits adultery against her. And likewise, if she divorces her husband, again, without grounds, and marries another, she commits adultery. So when someone divorces a spouse and then gets married to someone else, it's considered adultery. The rationale seems to be that even though you divorce your spouse, the covenant isn't ultimately broken at a foundational level. And so you should then, if, if there have not been grounds for that divorce, you should remain single or be reconciled rather than marry someone else. So the principle then is don't get divorced without biblical grounds of sexual morality or abandonment, or perhaps extreme cruelty. But if you do, don't marry someone else. If you get divorced without those grounds, don't marry someone else. Remain single or try to be reconciled. Of course, this raises the question what to do if you were divorced without biblical grounds, and now you are remarried to someone else. My view, and this isn't explicit in the Bible as far as I can tell, my view is that you would now need to be faithful to that second marriage. Um, you have made a new covenant, you've entered into it, and you need to be faithful um, to it. But again, I don't know of explicit Bible verses on that one, but that's general uh, practice in evangelical circles. So, in light of this, I want to revisit the three goals I had for this sermon. 
We could obviously keep going for hours. Q&A time would be very lively. I'm always up here after the sermon to talk. Um, the three goals. One, clarity with kindness. So let me summarize what we learned here. Marriage is the union of a man and a woman for life. And since God is the one who joins people together, we shouldn't separate it, except in a few extreme or narrow circumstances. So, Jesus is clear. The Bible is clear. Christians need to be clear. We need to be clear. If you are single and you want to be married, this is the vision you're committing to, and so you should embrace that if you'll pursue that. If you are married, then this is the vision you're called to fulfill. If you want to know God's will for your life, it's this. If you're married, stay married unless you have biblical grounds. And don't give your spouse biblical grounds for leaving you. And if you do get divorced without biblical grounds, stay single or be reconciled. So that's clarity. Now, as a church, we're committed to keeping this vision clear and helping one another be faithful to this. So if you don't have another couple in your life whom, whose marriage you respect if you're married, um, please find someone, get to know them, follow them as they're following Jesus here. Uh, we have a number of helpful resources in a resource corner for um, marriage and for singleness and how to live as a faithful Christian in each of those because each of those are callings that God gives to His people. The man who is giving us this Jesus was single in that sense. The Apostle Paul was single. So singleness and marriage are both legitimate, God-honored uh, vocations. And so we're called then to how do we live faithfully as a Christian in these uh, good vocations? And we want to have this clarity with kindness. So we don't need to be rude about it. We don't need to be mean about it. Um, and we need to focus mainly on our own selves because no matter what the culture does, no matter how someone might think you're really weird for believing this, no one can keep you from having a thriving marriage if you're married, right? That doesn't need to change your ability to have a really happy Jesus-honoring marriage. So focus your attention on that and be really nice to everyone else who disagrees with you. Second goal, repentance with joy. So some of you may be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now, which is what we hope happens. Um, it's a good thing. We welcome the Holy Spirit working in our hearts saying, you're wrong, you need to repent. Because that's the Holy Spirit waking us up to how we've been pursuing a path of destruction and selfishness, and He's in the process of waking us up so we receive fresh forgiveness, total acceptance through the cross, and then be readjusted to God's design, which is for our good and for flourishing. So if you have been convicted of sin here, do not try to just cover that over or, or feel like, oh, this is just condemnation. God would never have this feeling in me. No, like God gives us those hard feelings so that we can rejoice in transformation. So follow it through. Repent on your way to joy and rejoicing and receive it. The cross is what makes it safe to do this, right? If you come to Jesus, you're under His grace. He has set His affection on you from before the foundation of the world, and he's, he's patient with you, and He's taking you through a process of transformation. So say, thank you. I receive this. This is hard. Help me.
and find a friend to walk in the light with as well. So repentance with joy, and then finally, courage with compassion. It'll take courage to embrace what Jesus says in our culture. Uh, It took courage in Jesus' culture. It took courage for Jesus to say that. And when Matthew tells the story and gives some more details, the disciples were kind of shocked at what Jesus says. They're like, no way. It's better not even be married if you're this serious about it, right? And that's when he said, yeah, maybe some people, you have this calling to be single in the kingdom then. Um, so it's radical. It was radical. It, it takes courage to hold on to this. Jesus has always been countercultural. Um, but it's not that this is just kind of an ancient vision that's kind of just hard to carry over to a modern culture. Um, it has always been hard to do this. Moses' day was an easy divorce culture. So it's always been hard. And so as we recommit to following Jesus and his vision, we need to have courage but also compassion and lots of patience for those who disagree. So let's be patient with each other. Let's, um, as some have put it, let's be a church that's ready to receive the refugees from the sexual revolution because this, this as, a, as a going in the opposite direction of God's design is going to lead to destruction for families and children and people. And so let's just be ready to embrace and And let's do this acknowledging that we are all sexual sinners. I am a sexual sinner. We are all sexual sinners. None of us, as far as I've never met anyone, who is born and continues with a desire that's exclusively to be faithful to one spouse for marriage. We all have lusts and sexual brokenness. So here we are, a bunch of broken people, welcoming broken people, following our Lord Jesus, receiving grace of forgiveness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, trying to navigate the times that we're in. So we need courage to do this. We need a lot of compassion for one another as well. And we'll close with this. You know the main reason why we should and can have compassion regarding this topic of marriage and divorce? Because it's because of what the central message of the Bible is actually all about. The message of Christianity is not marriage is good, get married, don't get divorced. The central message of Christianity is this. Ultimate reality is love. Because there is an eternal being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a God of love. And this God has created the world as an overflow of His goodness, and He has planned to write a history that is a story of love from beginning to end. And it's why the the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. He creates humanity in his own image. He joins them together, Adam and Eve. And then we fast forward to the end of the Bible, and there's this marriage supper of the Lamb, which is this union of the Lord Jesus Christ with his people in an eternal fellowship of love. So the God of love has created history as a story of love, and he's bookended it with marriages. And in between those bookends, we have the cross of Jesus Christ. We have this God who has become a man to rescue us and bring us into this eternal fellowship. And he's decided to put marriage in the world to picture this love story, to be a little picture of Christ and the church, to proclaim that to one another and to the world. For, so that we find fulfillment in the ultimate reality, which is the marriage of Christ and his people. So we're headed toward a new creation where there, will no, no be, uh, there won't be marriage anymore, 
right? So marriage is temporary. Those of you who are married, you're probably statistically going to be single again. Some of you are living that right now. The good news is that whether married or single, we're headed toward a new creation where all of God's people will be single in one sense and not married, and yet married as the church to our Creator in an eternal fellowship of love. So as we find ourselves not just in the midst of this hard cultural moment, we find ourselves in the midst of this story of love. And so it's a call for all of us right now to just turn our hearts to this God who made us and say thank you. It is hard for me to, each of us in different ways, hard for me to embrace what you say in your word. Help me because I want to know you. So forgive me through the cross of Christ. Empower me by the Holy Spirit. And then let's do that together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you to express our hearts to you. And all of us perhaps expressing different things. For those in this room, Lord, who feel like they're uncomfortable with who you reveal yourself to be, we pray that you would comfort them and help them and help them seek truth. For all of us, Lord, we pray that you would give us a posture of openness toward you, and we express that right now. We want to receive truth, and we want to know that this is good, and we want to see this as beautiful. So please help us do that, and for some of us, it, looks, it feels so hard to see it this way. We pray that you would help us, and that you'd help us be a bright light in our culture moving forward. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.